This episode of The Spark contains frank discussion about sex and human sexuality. Listener discretion is advised. If this topic isn't your thing, we invite you to listen to a different episode of The Spark at thesparkpod.com, or check out any of the other shows available here on KRFC. And now, on with the show. Life is non-binary. It's not black and white. It's it's not either good or bad. It's mostly both. <laughs> Most things are some combination of all of the above. We exist in this weirdly schizo culture where sex is everywhere in the media and yet at the same time, you don't sit down and have a conversation about what you did in bed last night with your friends. Despite the ubiquity of sex, it's still a taboo when it comes to day-to-day conversation. Author Mary Roach. Tonight, we take the lid off this taboo subject and discuss the importance of embracing authentic sexuality and understanding sexual advocacy. Welcome to The Spark. I'm your host, Stephanie James. My guest tonight is sexologist, sexuality advocate, and sex love and relationship coach, Dr. Emma Myers. Emma received her PhD at the Institute for Advanced Study of Human Sexuality and is currently in private practice as well as a psychology professor at Colorado State University. It's wonderful to have Emma Myers join us here at The Spark. Welcome to The Spark, Emma. Thank you, Stephanie. I'm so excited to be here. You know, I would imagine most people haven't heard of a sexual or a sexuality advocate. So would you define that for us? Sure, sure. Yes, most people have not heard of it. Um, it's it's a term I sort of stumbled on as I was trying to find my own identity as um, a sexuality coach and a sexologist and going through school. And so to me, what it really means is advocating for people's authentic sexualities because society often tries to put our sexuality in a box with lots of labels and lots of right ways and wrong ways to supposedly do things with our sexuality. And yet that that doesn't help us become functioning, fulfilled sexual beings. Um, so I found often that that people needed within themselves and and support from larger society to embrace what really was going on in their body, in their desires, um, in their relationships with themselves and with others. In graduate school, did you were you you were in psychology at first? Yes. Yes. So I, I went up to Alaska Pacific University and pursued, began pursuing a master's in counseling psychology. Uh, my, my big picture plan was to, you know, I started at CSU with a human development and family studies undergrad, and then I wanted to do a master's in counseling psych, and then eventually the PhD in human sexuality. And while I was in Alaska, I was in a life-threatening relationship and I had to leave in the middle of the night. Much to my, um, not, not, that wasn't the, the way I wanted to do it. I was, I was desperately trying to figure out a way to stay because I loved my program, but I had to leave. And so I jumped on a plane in the middle of the night with my backpack and my dog, and I, I had to leave that program behind. And, and it ended up being a real, gift in a way because I was accepted into my PhD program despite the fact that I didn't complete my master's. And 
what I learned there was about so much of the the sex negative bias that really is in the larger culture and also specifically within the field of psychology. And so I remember my first semester there, there was a student who was presenting their dissertation. And uh, it's actually Dr. Chris Donahue, who's a somewhat well-known sex therapist, especially in the L.A. area. And he was talking about just how much that sex-negative bias can actually cause more harm to clients when we're specifically talking about sex therapy. When, when we're really trying to, to push our clients into these ideas of what healthy sexuality is, but we're defining it for them. And really, you know, who, who gets to define healthy sexuality? Who gets to define, you know, what the best or what the, what, what the most um, prestige or, or desired sexuality is supposed to look like? And, and that's, that's you. You get to decide that, you know, kind of like a snowflake or something. We, we all really get to create what that means and, and how much, you know, the psychological perspective comes at sexuality from a very, you know, this is normal and this is abnormal. That's the whole DSM, defining what is abnormal. And, and sexuality is so much more diverse than that perspective can embrace. Um, so I was really grateful to have kind of seen that. And, you know, there was, there was a silver lining in my story. Um, and, and so I, I was really honored to be able to go to my, to my school in San Francisco and fully embrace that sexological perspective well, and how wonderful that oftentimes it, it is out of adversity, these things come to us that, that oftentimes turn into a blessing. Yes. And yes. it sounded like that's what happened with you. And and the other note that I wanted to, to key in on is when you said, you know, and, and I, I read this, I think, in Psychology Today, and, and you've spoken about it, I think, on your post, where you talk about so often, so many times, oftentimes therapists have their own sexual biases and how aware we need to be, because oftentimes there's not a lot of human sexuality taught. I took, you know, Dr. Larry Bloom's human sexuality course at CSU way back when, and yet how much of it is a part of psychology's regular coursework, unless you're focused on it? And, And so how important it is, it sounds like, to really look at our own biases as we're therapists and and what message we are conveying to yeah, our clients. Yeah, exactly. Because there's there's so many biases in so many different perspectives. And that's one of the cool things that I love to teach my students is about the sexological perspective. And that that really tries its hardest to strip away the sex negative bias and trying to look at sexuality and, and behaviors um, is not inherently bad or good necessarily, but but not bad. And, and it's really... Um, how the person feels about it, that that matters. And that's an important point. You know, I, I know myself, I had uh, sought consult with a friend of mine who is a intimacy and sexuality therapist um, because I wanted to make sure I was understanding clearly what defines sexual deviancy. And so I think that that's a great question to ask you as well. Yeah, yeah. So sexual deviancy almost doesn't exist from the sexological perspective. 
from the sexological perspective, we try to completely acknowledge and embrace that sexuality is incredibly diverse. If you can think of it, it's been done. (laughs) It's out there. Somebody's doing it, interested in it, desiring it. And this can start to make people very uncomfortable because from a sexological perspective, we acknowledge that there are sexual behaviors, um, for example, pedophilia or or um, sexual violence or something where as from the sexological perspective we acknowledge that we will see that that is a normal thing that might be desired given the fact that there are seven billion people that have a unique sexuality going on so that is going to come up but the behavior piece, you know, acting on our sexual desires is a, is a slightly different conversation um, uh, and how we do that because we don't want to harm people. And that's also incredibly important. Consent is very important from the sexological perspective, especially as it relates to behavior. But desires and behavior can be different and they're vastly diverse and that's okay and that's good. <laughs> well, and what an important distinction yeah. for people to really be clear about. Yeah. That it's okay to have maybe the idea or the fantasy or the thoughts. It's how you behave, how you act that out and that you're not perpetrating it against another human being. Yes. And I had the privilege of one of my most impactful classes in grad school. It was advanced erotology. And we had the privilege to listen to people who felt desires for younger individuals or people. And they talked about, and and they never, never, ever, 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 ever wanted to act on those or do anything like that, but that they had them and, and they needed a space to talk about them. And pushing things into the shadows gives them more power. And that's what we do as a society with sexuality as a whole. I mean, I'm obviously talking about a very extreme example, but we push sexuality into the shadows and they do a lot of damage there when really, the, I guess that's also a piece of the advocacy is, is bringing it out into the open and and acknowledging what's really going on and how do we navigate it it's messy there's no right there's no right way there's no perfect way <laughs> um and and yeah so i i i really um i love working with this stuff <laughs> well and it sounds that that's one of the important pieces is really you know we've heard about this when you hear about like alcoholism the family secrets around that and how our, our secrets make us sick. Mm-hmm. And and so I'm really hearing some of that same theme within this where it's yeah. it's truly when we put things in the dark, that's what causes the dis-ease or the disease yeah, that, that we're dealing with. Right. And, and so to be able to have these kind of conversations and bring things to the light and to help people you know, more readily embrace what, you know, used to be, quote unquote, their shadow selves. Yeah becomes a really important conversation. Yeah, exactly. Yo, I don't think we should talk about this. Come on, why not? People might misunderstand what we're trying to say, you know? But it's a part of life. Come on, let's talk about sex, baby. What makes sex such a difficult subject to talk about? And why is it more important than ever that we start having these difficult conversations? So it's interesting because I'm, f- I'm feeling drawn to answer this in, in a sort of meta way. 
why is sex so hard to talk about? There's a voice inside of me saying like, there's no, there's no good reason. Why is it so hard to talk about? It? But I think my, the meta voice is telling me that sex is a core part of humanity. If you think about it, it's how all life begins. It's this deep rooted piece of every living thing. We all came from some form of sex. And because it's so deep, I think it also makes it vulnerable because if we feel wounded or if we feel judged or if we feel hurt around our sexuality, that is hurting a lot of layers of our identity because it's so deep. I think there's an element of that going on. I think there's also an element of there are a lot of systems of oppression and a way to control someone is to get to their root. So if we can control society's sexuality, we can control them pretty deeply. There, we, can, we can get access to a deep part of people's psyches when we start to propagate an idea of a, of a right kind of sexuality, of a very, you know, cis, heteronormative, white, able-bodied, thin, young sexuality. And so I think those two pieces, along with a, a number of things I'm sure not, not addressing right now, but it, those are the ones that really come to mind as to why I think this topic can be so hard is is it's, it's, it's deep to us and therefore very vulnerable. And also it's been subjected to control and systems over thousands of years to try to shape society, I guess. <laughs> well, and, and interestingly, you know, in, in our modern culture, I mean, we've, thank God, moved a little bit away from the stereotypical, like what comes to mind is what makes a woman sexy. And that that was, you know, in a size two. Again, you know, the white heterosexual, yeah. female, young, for sure. And so somehow th there's a mindset that comes with it that that's only what's sexy. And so that kind of sexuality is what's okay and what's permissible. Mm -hmm. And and the rest, you know, and, and that's why I'm saying what, what I've loved in the media, maybe in the last five, 10 years, is full-figured women, beautiful women with lots of sensuality. And so our sexuality and sensuality is coming in lots of different packages, and that's yeah. becoming more widely accepted. Yeah, yeah, and it's 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 just a testament to how important representation is, and and how much it impacts people to see themselves in people who have a stage and people who are given a platform and a voice, and and how important it is that that we have you know, a wide range of people in power, making decisions, showing themselves, you know, uplifting voices that we don't get to hear. It's all really important to a lot of things. And sexuality is one of those things. I think oftentimes, if we're going to look outside of the box of what maybe our media or society has perpetuated as normal, there was an article also, I believe I saw in Psychology Today about the five myths around relationships and sexuality. And it discussed some things that are definitely considered taboo as far as some of the things, you know, that you and I probably hear in our offices, which is um, about kink. It's about same-sex relationships, which, of course, we're hearing more about, but also 
neutral gender or non-binary yes thank you um polyamorous yeah polyamorous relationships and then snm yeah so a lot of these super that in the past they have been very yeah fringe topics and i feel like i actually have gotten quite an education from my own clients who come in and say yeah i was just at the kink fest in boulder and you know i really i have to admit there's parts of me that are very naive to some of those things. And, you know, here I've been in the mental health field for almost 30 years. So I I think it's really important that we understand what some of these things are and and debunk some of the myths around this. Yeah, yeah. So I guess I'll start with with kink and and BDSM. So BDSM stands for a complicated (laughs) thing, but it's, um, let me get it right. It's going to be bondage and discipline, dominance, submission, and sadism and masochism. So that's BDSM kind of jumbled. Okay. Okay. So there's a few different realms that fall under, that's sort of the umbrella term for what used to just be kind of called S&M. And it it's it's a lively community and 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 one that I was introduced to in school. We had the opportunity to take an an optional field trip where we went to you have to go to what's called a munch before you go and and go into sort of like a public BDSM uh, what we call a dungeon <laughs> where people go to play. Um, but we had an opportunity to go to a munch where you learn all the rules. They highly emphasize kink, which despite what most people think looking from the outside, creates a huge amount of safety that honestly is rarely there in just sort of everyday vanilla, you know, sex that we picture from from TV. Yeah. Kink actually creates a huge amount of safety because they emphasize so strongly the importance of consent, explicit consent. And, and you have to come up with different ways that you will express consent with the people you decide to play with. Because there could be, there could be, you know, maybe your mouth is tied. (laughs) So you can't say red, you know. So you, you really go deeply into where your boundaries are, which is a beautiful thing, especially for people who've had boundaries crossed. And then you get to play in these fantasies in a safe container, um, you get to play out power fantasies of of fully submitting, which for people who feel like they have to have it all together all the time and be in control and and you know always know what to do, it's nice to have that safe space to to let go and to be somebody else, to be submissive if you want to be, or to to fully embrace your power. That can feel really empowering and knowing you're in a safe space with somebody who's wanting it. And you you feel safe in that you you trust that you can communicate with this person. So I think, unfortunately, you know, with the Fifty Shades of Grey trending, a lot of people got very excited about it and want to jump into it. But it requires a lot of education. And so does sex, (laughs) honestly. Um, But it requires a lot of education and a lot of trust and a lot of um, maturity and and communication to be developed. You know, we're a fast, quick, we want it right now kind of society, and that doesn't always happen. So, you know, that's sort of my, my caveat to I'm telling you, like, kink can be this great thing, and it requires a lot of education, and and a lot of people participate in it. 
if you like having a blindfold, then yeah, you you like, <laughs> you know, doing that sensation play. If you like the feeling of, you know, warm oil on your back, that is sensation play. And we just give it another name that we're more comfortable with in the mainstream sometimes. So just recognizing that that it's it's a normal thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's something that if you want to try, you can. If it's something you don't want to try, you don't have to. And then that kind of leads me to the polyamory. <laughs> what happens if you have a desire that your partner doesn't have? That's one of the many things that open relationships, I should say, have offered people. So there's a slight difference uh, between polyamory and necessarily the term open relationships. So polyamory is really, it means multi-poly love, amory. So there's a true element of love going on when people identify as being polyamorous. They have love for multiple partners. Now, there are other relationships that are just simply open relationships where the dynamic can be vastly different. Uh, maybe you're swingers where you and your partner just go to a club or um, go to a private swinging party and you just swap partners for the night, but there's no love going on. There's no long-term relationship. Or maybe, you know, there's even things as creative of, you know, my partner is allowed to have internet sex where, you know, they're allowed to flirt with people online, and but anything where they actually meet up in person, I don't want any other physical contact. There's open relationships like that. So it, again, it can be a custom to what really works for the, the individuals in the relationship. Um, so open relationships is sort of the umbrella term. Polyamory definitely being a, a big um, subsect of open relationships. And so I think that's also a beautiful conversation that we're having as a society. We're acknowledging that, you know, maybe monogamy isn't what's best for everyone. And, and our divorce rate is super high. And, you know, not to say that divorce is a bad thing or even something to necessarily be ashamed of, but it is happening, divorce. Mm -hmm. And so let's talk about how can we as a society embrace and support people to have a diverse range of relationships that truly work for them and their families. And I think one of the points that you said that's really important, it's what the couple chooses together. Yes. And and so it, it really is okay as well, I think, you know, to talk about the flip side of the coin. If two people really are comfortable in their monogamous relationship, right on. Yes. That's, that's wonderful. That's fine. We don't have to put it on a scale as better than or worse than. It just is. That's what those two people have consented or committed exactly. to. That's their agreement. And yet there's all these other, I hate to say shades of gray, but it's, it, there truly is. They're not black and white. Yeah. So there's all this other gray area, <laughs> which is really, you know, how what fits in our relationship? Yeah. How do we want to do this that works best for us? And if, like you said, one partner's really wanting to maybe explore something they talk about, how does that work for them as a couple? Yeah. What can they do? And that it doesn't have to be demonized and something horrible because they're not fitting some traditional, again, quote unquote, standard of what a relationship, especially a sexual relationship, should look like. Exactly. Exactly. And that's one of the, the overall themes that I try to teach my students is that life is non-binary. It's not black and white. It's it's not either good or bad. It's mostly both. <laughs> Most things are some combination of all of the above. And 
I try to get them comfortable sitting in that space of of gray, of this isn't perfect, this isn't all bad, all good, all this, all that. It's a little bit of everything. And to, to be okay not knowing the perfect answer. So we're going to take a quick break, and then I will be back again with Dr. Emma Myers here on The Spark, KRFC 88.9 FM. Approaching its 15th year on the air, KRFC is a community-centered radio station and streaming network focused on telling the stories of Northern Colorado. Our programming and operations are built by more than 200 volunteers who feature a wide variety of voices, opinions, and musical tastes. We produce over 65 shows locally with music, news, and community affairs programming with a hyper-local focus. We're streaming worldwide on www.krfc.fm and other platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Amazon Echo, and others. To learn about how you can support KRFC through underwriting, visit www.krfc.fm. Next time on The Spark... And for me, that's that's been a big part of it is just really taking those those mistakes, those learning where you're what you're good at, and what you're not good at. So you're really learning about yourself. Um, I, so many of us never really do that. We talk with founder of Otterbox and serial entrepreneur Kurt Richardson, who built Otterbox from a shop in his garage to a billion dollar brand and who believes that to whom much is given, much is expected. Next time on The Spark. This episode of The Spark contains frank discussion about sex and human sexuality. Listener discretion is advised. If this topic isn't your thing, we invite you to listen to a different episode of The Spark at thesparkpod.com, or check out any of the other shows available here on KRFC. And now, on with the show. We are back with Dr. Emma Myers and talking about sex and sexuality, debunking some myths. One of the things I want to talk to you about is the fact that you're a sex, love, and relationship coach. So what does that particular role for you entail? And then I want to talk a little bit about what are the reasons an individual or couple might work with a sex, love, and relationship coach? Sure. Yeah, so as a sex, love, and relationship coach, I'm actually I'm actually currently in a training right now um, through the Tantric Institute of Integrated Sexuality, and that program is is really teaching me some tools and methodology, um, as well as one 
piece that I really needed was, you know, the business piece and how to, how to run an online business. But, um, really some of the tools and methodology to take my coaching to the next level, to really bring it a little bit deeper than simply just talking about sexuality, offering suggestions and homework to take home. It's really teaching me how to help people drop into their body and listen to their body's own wisdom about what their sexuality is and what it's trying to tell them. Because we have a lot of, you know, psychological and even physiological mechanisms working to push lots of our sexuality down so that we present the sexuality that we think will keep us the safest in society, right? And so my coaching is, is really going to another level of uh, meditation and breath work and uh, mindfulness practices and, and pleasure practices and really helping clients um, figure out what their sexuality really is when we strip away the fear, when we strip away the shoulds. Um, and so... I that that's what I do. I <laughs> a lot of it is online and uh, people will will have Skype sessions with me and I will ask them to to literally close their eyes, take a deep breath and tell me what the sensation is because we have thoughts in our cortex, we have feelings and emotions in our limbic brain, and then we have our primal brain, which is lit our sensations, and that's really where our deep sexuality lives. And so I invite them to, to feel that and to describe it and to give it a voice and to let it take us on a journey of, of figuring out what our sexuality is and then advocating for that. And I do that with individuals and couples. Individuals might come to me because they are struggling to find a partner, a, a lifelong partner, and they've gone through a series of just relationships. Maybe they're similar, maybe they're totally different, but they're just cycling through and feeling stuck. It could be somebody coming to me who just went through a divorce and is feeling heartbroken and needs to learn how to self-love themselves and how to allow the love and the sexuality to be with them, even if they're alone. Um, I have couples coming to me who have communication issues. You know, they're, they're either fighting a lot or they don't know how to talk to each other about sex. They know they want to, they just don't know how because it's scary and people's feelings get hurt and we project things. <laughs> and so sometimes it's couples needing tools to talk about sexuality and to invite more intimacy, invite more authentic intimacy into their relationship. So yeah, it's it's really a variety of people. I, I tend to work a little bit better with women just because they see themselves in me and, you know, we have more shared experiences. But I'm really excited to work with men as well because I think there's a big piece of, of the conversation that men need to be a part of and they don't know how to be. And this also relates to the big Me Too movement going on. I think right now a lot of women are coming out and using their voices and men don't know how to be a part of the conversation in response to it. And so there's 
uh, a deep part of me that that wants that has compassion for men and wants to try to find a way to hold space for them to develop this awareness and develop these skills that they need to have that other part of the conversation, to have a response, to do better, <laughs> to reflect, to create safe spaces for themselves and for women um, and all people. There, there really is some excitement in me in, in learning how to, how to work with men as well. So do you find that the online format creates more safety for people to be able to maybe show up and, and have these kind of difficult conversations with you? Totally, totally. Um, in my program, we the first trimester, we kind of go on our own personal deep dive, and we're kind of experiencing what our clients will be experiencing when we use these models and these tools. And... I can say for myself, it is so much easier online. <laughs> it's so much easier. And, and it's all video, but it's just safer. And there are ways you can, for example, we have workshops online, which are, which are things I plan on offering eventually as well, where the instructor can demonstrate a practice and then we're in the privacy of our own bedrooms with a candle lit and the door locked and, you know, <laughs> the heater on. And, and we can do that practice right there, knowing that 200 other women around the world are doing the practice with me, you know, because we're all online. But it's safe. You can do it right there behind closed doors. You can turn the video off, you know, so that they don't see you. And, and then you come back on when you're ready to go. So I've found that that online really is is a, a new and exciting kind of area to sort of be bridging this profession into. I think the other piece, too, that you were talking about in inviting men into these conversations, I think there's an important part, and I, and I do want to get into talking about the Me Too movement, where men oftentimes, not only is it difficult to talk about sexuality, but also it's, it's hard for them to be the people that are also saying Me Too. Mm -hmm. Oh, so much. You know, I one of the people that I really respect and follow his blog is Lewis Howes. If you're familiar with him, The School of Greatness is his podcast. And he did an episode with Brene Brown on vulnerability. And I thought it was so powerful that here's this guy that was semi-pro football. He's still, he's on the American handball team. He's just a stud. He's a really good looking man and was able to share his own sexual abuse by a man as a child. And to be able to talk about that vulnerability, I thought that is so powerful to open up that conversation. What a necessary thing. It's so important. It's so important because, um, again, part of that binary, there are strict rules on masculinity. There are strict rules on men and sort of, uh, you know, guiding them and shaping them. And, and being vulnerable and talking about abuse is not, is not what is traditionally defined as masculine. Certainly how I define masculine would obviously include lots of vulnerability and all of that. But traditional masculinity has this fierce, intense grip on men. And it makes it so hard. That that really is is a big part of the conversation and sort of a flip side to, like you were saying, to the whole conversation of how hard it is 
to to be in such a small box. And sure, you know, it is a box that holds a lot of power, but it's also a controlling box. It's also a non-authentic box for most men um, in, in some way. And, and so allowing them the freedom to express a different kind of masculinity is really important. And, and that comes from women, that comes from other men, that comes from all people, all ages. And, and it also comes from remembering that every group, men, women, white, black, et cetera, straight, gay, et cetera, they're not a monolith. <laughs> they're so diverse in and of each of those groups and everybody has a subjective story. Everybody has a subjective experience. And the, a beautiful goal that I hope society can one day you know, strive for and reach is how do we embrace all of those pieces? And how do we let you know, men be vulnerable? How do we let women be powerful? How do we, how do we um, bridge all these broken things? <laughs> right. Yeah. There's, there's lots of chunks out of this bridge. Yeah. Right. So it, it's how do we repair this? How do we smooth this road so that we can all come together and really have this level of acceptance for each other mm -hmm. and each other's preferences and that to be okay? You know, mm -hmm. I, I think the flip side of that male vulnerability coin, of course, is women being truly able to embrace their sexuality, because that also has been a part that's been really kept in that little box and not allowed yeah. to just be expressed. You know, women that were really in touch with their sensuality and sexuality, you know, they were sluts, they were, you know, labeled all kinds of things, instead of just being sensual beings, which is within each one of us. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it's so important for women to have that freedom. And part of this whole Me Too is, is women need a safe space to be sexual. You know, I want to be able to walk down the street and feel sexy and feel sexual, but not be at risk of a catcall or worse, somebody grabbing me, you know, grabbing my butt or or following me to the bar or whatever. Right, right. Um, you know, so it's creating safety. And that's safety for men, that's safety for women, that's safety for other people um, to really express what's going on in their sexuality and to have our, our stories be witnessed, our stories be held, and for us to come from a space of healing to then grow into empowerment. So let's talk a little bit about the Me Too movement since 1998, when Tarana Burke started the Me Too movement. Over 17 million women have come out and come forward and said, you know, Me Too, I have been sexually assaulted. Yeah. So tell me about you. I know you're an advocate for this. Tell me about your involvement in the Me Too movement. Yeah. So my involvement has really been mostly on Facebook and mostly with individual relationships. 
in my life and 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 also in my practice um but really i've tried to embrace the nuances i think a lot of times it's it's easy and it's alluring to um make big statements and make things black and white and um, a lot of people from all sides of this conversation can start to feel attacked really quickly. And so my role in this has been has been trying to invite in the nuance, invite in the intersectionality, invite in the messiness, because it is a non-binary conversation. And if we try to have it in a binary way, we're going to be missing the, the bigger purpose, I think. And so, you know, I've really tried to, when I have these conversations and when I, when I you know, make posts on Facebook, I, I try to highlight the messiness. I try to highlight the grayness and, and try to invite it in and try to have the courage and the strength to hold all of it, even when it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to, to hold contradicting things and know that both can be true. Our brain is like, cannot compute, cannot compute. Right, know? right. <laughs> so, um, but, it, but it's the reality of, of, of what's going on. And uh, I, I, I try to be, I try to remember to be, to be wise enough to, to, to hold all those things and, and to not get too, um, too black and white with the conversation. How do, how do we invite people in to that conversation? I think that's an important question to ask. Because yeah. uh, as we know, I mean, people are uncomfortable with, like you said, you know, uh, something that feels messy. I used to say if I had a bumper sticker on my car, it would say life is messy. And yet to acknowledge that is really to say, okay, if I'm going to get into this mess, boy, I'm going to I'm going to have some discomfort possibly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, maybe that discomfort is just coming from some cognitive dissonances of like, that's not my truth. How could it be true? <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. Um, but it is. And, and, and I know that we all have a deeper wisdom that can recognize it is the truth, it, even if it's not my truth. It's, they're both truths. What does that mean? I thought there was true and false. <laughs> um, but so how do we invite that in? I can't say I'm an expert at it myself yet. You know, it, it takes a lot of reflection. It takes... A lot of noticing when I'm getting, when I'm becoming more binary in my thinking, when I'm starting to think I know something. <laughs> right, right. Um, which is humbling to admit, but it's a, it's a mindfulness. It's an awareness of how am I approaching this conversation? In what ways is my perspective limited? And how can I invite in, even if I don't understand, because there will be things from other people's experiences that I will never understand. The, the man who got molested that you were speaking of, I will never fully understand that, but I can still invite that in as a truth that is part of my existence. And, and I really do believe that we are all connected. And so on some level, that is my truth too. Even if it's, if it's not my personal truth in this life, we're connected 
So I, I want your truth. I want everybody's truth because, you know, in some degree it's going to affect me. And again, I think a lot of times sexuality truths are, are pushed to the shadows and, and, um, yeah, it's important to invite in all the messiness that comes with them. Well, and I just think that's a beautiful perspective. And and when you say that that's, that's it, we, we, we are all interconnected. And so when we can get to that place inside of us, all of a sudden it's not just us and them, that literally me too is, is literally saying, you know, I can look in your eyes and say, you're me too. Mm-hmm. You know, I yeah. am that. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and that's very powerful. And so it's really getting to that place in us where we can feel that interconnectedness with other people. And so we need to join in on those conversations. We need to get in touch with our own uncomfortableness around that, our own biases, and then maybe really reach a little deeper to create the space where we're able to hold other people's experiences and other people's truths so that we can greater hold this connection. Yeah, exactly. You know, from the very beginning of the show, we talked about authentic sexuality. And so I kind of wanted to bring it back full circle to what truly is authentic sexuality and and how do we get it? That is a great question. Um, Authentic sexuality is a combination of embracing diverse sexuality, embracing the the idea or the truth that sexuality is diverse and unique to everybody, and also finding the empowerment within ourselves to express what is our truth when it comes to sexuality, what is our authenticity and genuineness um, with with our desires and our expressions of intimacy. And how we get that is a lot of work and there's no one path. Everybody's path is totally different. Everybody has their own demons that they have to they have to process and they have to work through and their own blockages and and one of the terms we use in coaching is subpersonalities that you know those are the voices in our head that are telling us you know do it differently, or this is how it should be looking, or this is what you should be doing, or this is how how you should be expressing it. This is what your orgasm should look like. This is what your body should look like. Um, This is what your penis should look like and what it should be able to do for somebody else. Um, And it's, and it's really stepping out of that, all of those sub personalities, all of those voices. And it's really following what we call your felt sense. And it, it's, it's your body's sensations. Your body is wise. It knows it is built for pleasure. <laughs> it knows how to feel pleasure. Um, and so it's, it's coming home to a sense, coming mm-hmm. home to your body and um, doing the work of, and it, it, sometimes it's alone, sometimes it's with a coach, sometimes it's in a relationship, but really doing the work to try to process and, and, um, be honest about what your body is telling you. 
And as we more deeply embrace our own sexuality, then we more truly embrace ourselves. Yeah, because like I said at the very beginning, it is a core part of of humanity. It's why we're all here. <laughs> um, and so it, it really, yeah, it's it's deep work and and it's hard work and it's not quick. And honestly, what I've seen too is that there are stages. You might, you know, go through an integration period in your twenties and start to feel really good, and then as you move into your thirties and forties, there's another integration of of really you got to come back home and what my body and my sexuality have evolved, and I need to stay true to that. <laughs> well, yeah, sometimes, and I can speak to this personally. You know, as a mother. Um, you know, after we have our children, oftentimes we see ourselves then in the role of a mother instead of as a sexual being. Yes. So there's times where we've had to reinvent. I know I can speak again personally. We have to reinvent ourselves and re-embrace that sexuality and that I, I can be a sexual being as well as a mother. Yes. And then after my kids leave and are in college or they go off in their own lives, then as you're saying, then there's another kind of revolution, if you will, or what, what's the right word? Ev- evolution. Evolution, not revolution. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My own sexual revolution. Yeah. No. But yeah, my own, yeah, we, we have a new evolution into what, what that looks like. Exactly, yeah, so it's a lifelong journey. Um, embracing your authentic sexuality because it's it's always changing just like we are in, in all areas of our lives and um, it takes a lot of courage and I'm I'm really honored to do this work with people and to witness people digging into it and and figuring it out well I'm so thankful to have people like you in our world and in our community and and here at CSU and and right here in the studio being able to share this message with us it's such a, an important message. What is a first step for people who haven't explored their sexuality, who are very new, you know, to being open about any of this? You know, there's a part of me that wants to say, okay, everyone, I don't care what major you're in, everyone needs to take a human sexuality course, you know, which is not a bad idea. Not everyone can do that. So wh- what would be a good starting point for people who want more information, who kind of want to start exploring this for themselves? Yeah, I I would recommend books, articles, and YouTube videos. There are some brilliant people out there who are writing, publishing, and producing videos. Um, And that's kind of, you know, a, a different flavor for every person. Some people prefer books where they can go really deep into a topic. Some people like just starting to look at articles and, you know, following sex positive bloggers or Facebook, Instagram, people, Twitter. Um, And then there's the YouTube. There's really a lot of rich education online um, and TED Talks and stuff like that. So that's a great first place to start. It's safe. Nobody has to know that you're curious if you don't want them to know yet. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, eventually... There's, there's a different path from there, whether you call a, call a sex, love, and relationships coach or whether you, you know, have a girl's night and you kind of divulge into the du- juicy book you just read or maybe you sign up for a, for a workshop or, or something like that. So, But I find starting with, with reading articles and YouTube videos is a safe place for a lot of people. Thank you so much for that. Yeah. And so... Emma, if someone wanted to be in touch with you, what is a good way to contact you or to find out more information about sex, love, and relationship coaching? Yeah, I, the best way to get in touch with me would be to um, check out my website. It's 
www.sexualityadvocate.com. Thank you, Emma, for being here with us on The Spark. Thank you so much for having me, Stephanie. My interview with Emma Myers was both provocative and enlightening. I think one of the biggest points she talked about is how sex is a core part of our humanity and that we all came from sex. So it's intricately connected to who we are. We might shut sexuality down. We might put it in a box for ourselves, but it is an innate part of what makes us a human being. One of the things she talked about as well is sexual diversity being embraced and brought to the light. That we have to look at our own self as a unique sexual being and that we can embrace others' truths even if they aren't our own. She also made me more aware of what personal biases I may bring into the therapy office. I was finding that it was important to really make sure that I tuned in that I was being open and accepting and making sure that what I was communicating to my clients was a place and a deep level of empathy and compassion and acceptance for whatever they were going through and making sure that my personal filter was wiped clean so there was nothing of my own bias coming through. I thought that was really an important awareness. One of the things that Emma brought to life was sexuality is diverse and unique to everyone. It comes in all shapes and sizes, male, female, and, and there's no black and white about it. That talking about sex and exploring our sexuality is a messy and important part of being human. Through her sex, love, and relationship coaching, Emma is able to help people drop into their own bodies and their own authentic selves and to really start to explore their own sexuality. I liked the part where she emphasized that our sexuality is an evolution throughout our lifetimes. We continue to grow and evolve as human beings in a vast amount of areas, as well as sexuality. Another point being Safety and boundaries are also so important. As individuals explore their own sexuality, their safety and boundaries and their ability to communicate these with others become essential. It's so important that we are safe sexual beings and that when we're in a partnership or having a sexual encounter that we're able to communicate appropriately, we're able to communicate clearly and we're able to be assured that our safety will be respected and that no will mean no and that we can have a communication where we're connecting. Our sexuality is a beautiful part of ourselves. So if we are able to embrace our own sexuality and do some of the difficult work that it takes 
to explore our own sexual nature, the hope is that we can also then be less judgmental, be more open and accepting of other people. It really touched my heart when Emma was saying, you know, we are all interconnected. We're all connected. And I know a really helpful practice for me has been when I see other people that may be different from me. Um, I was just in San Francisco for the weekend and there's so much diversity there. And it's a beautiful thing to be walking down the street and seeing people of every race, every color, every religion, every sexual orientation, and just being open to that. One of the ways we can get rid of some of our judgmentalness and our bias is to just embrace others with just the mindset of, I am that, I am. So I am that, whether I choose to live that in my current life or not, I can choose that that's not a fit for me, but I am that in that I am a human sexual being and I embrace my sexuality and I'm gonna make room for other people to embrace theirs, even if it's not my orientation. Emma's message is one that really does allow us to have those uncomfortable conversations with ourselves in a trusted place. I love that some of the therapy is available online and that would be a safe way to go about getting some of those needs met, but hopefully embracing our own true sexuality, being able to explore that in a safe way, whether it's with a love, sex, and relationship coach, or whether it's through our own exploration. And that again, the greater goal is that we're able to join together in a way where we continue to cultivate tolerance for each other's differences, because it's within that that we begin to heal the world. Remember, The Spark is your show too. If you have questions, feedback on the show, or if you're going through something and need a little help, We'd love to hear from you. Continue the conversation with us at our website, thesparkpod.com, and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. New episodes of The Spark air Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Mountain on KRFC, Fort Collins, 88.9 FM, and podcast episodes are released the same day. To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts. The show is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional and should not be considered medical advice. If you're having a mental or physical health crisis, please seek treatment immediately. The Spark is produced by NOCO Media Limited, which is solely responsible for its content. Thanks again for listening. This has been The Spark, igniting your best life. I'm Stephanie James.